Welcome to Payne on Politics, a podcast where host Dr. Gregory Payne of Emerson College sits down with fellow experts to discuss the current state of politics, public opinion, and global affairs. In a world growing increasingly complex, communication and critical thinking is key. This only makes the Emerson motto, expression necessary to evolution, more true. Hello once again during this festive holiday time. I am Gregory Payne, the Chair of Communication Studies at Emerson College and the Co-Director of the Emerson Blancarna Global Center. I'm here today with an Emerson icon, and I say that only because icons resonate not only with the past, but also current, and that would be Tom Smith. Tom, welcome to Payne on Politics. Well, thank you very much. Class of 66, by the way. Class of 66. And Matt- Master's degree of 69? Yes. Well, well, I think that's a good that's a good place to start. Now, Tom, you have been here for a number of years. You've been here longer than I have and been a part of a very, very important tradition. First of all, what attracted you as a student in the 60s to Emerson College? Well, in high school, I had a public speaking teacher, um, Lillian Ricker. She went to Emerson College, but she uh, was a very good public speaker, and I enjoyed the class. I said, oh, this sounds interesting. I kind of wanted to be a speech therapist, so I started out, and Emerson, BU, uh, I got accepted at both, but I liked Emerson better, only because it was smaller. I figured I'd get lost in BU, and I don't know, there's something about Emerson that attracted me. The old buildings. Now, when you talk about the old buildings, we refer to those as uh, the legacy buildings. Oh, and yes. of course, 21 Commonwealth was acquired in the 80s, uh, or well, 1980s. I don't want people to think we're acquiring back at Charles Wesley's time. But you were, of course, roaming the streets of Beacon Street. That's right. Um, 130 Beacon Street, 132. Across the street was 143 and 145. Right. Uh, 303 was just purchased, I believe, and that became... Humanities, I think, Yeah, right? the, well, the, the library for a long time. Initially, day. yes. Haunted, by the way, on the... Ha- now, haunted the, by what? Fisher well, we students? Do, we never or, know, we don't but know? It, was, it was spooky there on the fifth floor. And a, a crickety old elevator. I don't remember the, the old elevator. Maybe they had replaced it by the time I came. But one thing I want to point out, many students, including Colin Han, who is with us here today, when they talk about the Emerson newspaper, they say the Berkeley Beacon, and they can't quite figure out why it's called oh. the Berkeley Beacon. Now, it would be because the streets at that time, Berkeley going across toward the Charles and Beacon. And Beacon. Which was, was, the was Emerson's Emerson. address, so it was on the corner of Berkeley and Beacon Street. Now, what we've been doing, Tom, is we've been going over there. We'll talk a little bit about the geography because this side, uh, downtown, you know, the theater district, of course, which used to be the combat zone, has been revitalized by Emerson and the city coming together. It's a, it's a totally different and wonderful campus. But when you think about your time at Emerson and so many people who were here in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, up to the present, there was something special about those brownstones. And my question to you, uh, people always talk about the wall. And when I came here, I kept going over when Vic Silvestri and Matarosian and Ken Cornell and Fran Lashota would talk about the wall, and I never could find the wall. Until finally I asked someone, and it's more like a stoop. It was a stoop. Yes. It was the uh, it was the stoop that ran from 130 all the way to 132. Right. right. And we used to sit there or gather around. That was the wall. In fact, one day some, some young lady and I were sitting on the wall and 
June Mitchell went by. She looked at the young lady. She says, careful now. You'll get piles sitting on that damp cement. And the kind of memories I have. Well, my question to you is June Mitchell. Yes. Uh, If we go down to the Helen Rose Room here at the Walker Building, we have, again, those iconic people, June Mitchell, Fran Lashoto, Ken Cronell. Later, we have, of course, John Anderson. We've got, of course, uh, Ken Grout. Tell us a little bit about June Mitchell, who at the time, I think, had a particular nickname, and her name was? was Mama Mitchell. Mama Mitchell. So tell us about uh, Mama Mitchell. Well, she was larger than life. I, I can't remember if I had her as a teacher. I don't think I had a course with her. But she was around, but she was old-fashioned. Her topics were, did she, she taught? She voice taught oral and interpretation and voice and articulation, and right. she also did Southwick's. Right. I think she, her... Her forte was Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet. And she was also in a movie, by the way. Yes. Uh, she was in, oh, Thomas Crown Affair, I think it was. Oh, I, when very they good. filmed in Boston. Yes, right. That was with Steve, Steve McQueen. Yeah. Steve McQueen. Wonderful uh, film. Colin, you need to check that one out. It's it's very good. All but right. She was, we, uh, but she was larger than life and... Uh, and dominant in the classroom. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, and you couldn't be late. Did not enter her classroom once it began. If you she were was late. like that. Yes. Yeah. Now, many people, of course, have an affinity, and part of what you do is professional voice and speech, which I have to say, very, very popular then. We went through a period when I think there was a movement to try to get away from the communication core. And now, what I would like to say, and we're very proud of the fact that we've grown 70% since 2015, that your courses, the traditional communication courses, are very, very popular today. Your course is packed. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the Emerson oral tradition of then, and then we can talk about what you do in the classroom today. All right. Okay. So when I entered Emerson in 1962, I think the first few days, everybody had to record something. They recorded all of us. Uh, There were little little tapes, member cassette tapes, and then everybody the freshman year took voice and articulation and they used those tapes to show us what we were and then they'd play them halfway through but everybody took voice and articulation then everybody took public speaking and then everybody took oral interpretation i forget the sequence but i believe the first course you took when you came to emerson was voice and articulation because we had to get all that nastiness out of you all those regionalisms all that awful sounding voices and all those other things uh some of which don't quite exist as much anymore but there's still other articulation problems What's interesting, Tom, is, uh, of course, Emerson was known, I think, throughout the country. It always has been as a creative uh, Petri dish uh, for communication trends. And I remember once uh, when I was doing speech writing for Mayor Bradley in Los Angeles, I met David Brinkley of the Huntley Brinkley Report on NBC, you know, very dominant journalist. And he said to me, Dr. Payne, I understand that you are now teaching at Emerson. I dated a girl when I was at Boston solely because have her let me come to her classes so that he could rid himself of some of his uh, regionalisms or, as he said, speech defects. And I think he had kind of a crisp approach, which he said was because of Emerson. Now, I want to dovetail into another uh, story that I've heard, and that is that Fran Lashoto worked with John Kennedy to remove or at least work Ted with Kennedy. His, Ted Kennedy to work with work with his regionalisms. 
No, he wanted to get it. Yes. And he didn't have it, so she worked with him. So she was teaching him to get the New England accent. Right. Yes. And she worked with Mike Dukakis when he ran for president, by the way. Right. Uh, She helped him with his... His inaugural, his first speech. She worked with him and worked with him in that first speech. For the convention speech? Yes. Right. And then, uh, then she said, well, and then, as Ms. Lashoto, I can't imitate her too well, but she says, well, and after that, he never called back. So I guess he thought he had learned everything or so, something so like, that. like that. But that's the way, she, the way was. she was. Yes. I think for people like Iris Burnett and Henry Winkler and Vin DeBono and, and Lee Schwabel and others who might have had these people, we had June Mitchell, we had Fran Lashoto uh, in that tradition of uh, oral communication excellence. We had Ken, Ken Cornell. Uh, and then we had Bernie McPherson and Dorothy yeah. Prince and others. When you think of, uh, of Ken Cornell, who was an icon from Northwestern, and uh, you know, there's a scholarship named after him. Can you give us kind of a your epitomization of what made this larger than life figure so popular and feared by some students who wanted to make sure that they could please him, which was a part of his style? Well, I think once you look past all the bombacity, that you find out that he was really very sincere, uh, very dedicated to what he was doing, and. Uh, just wanted people to be better. Uh, he, his approach was certainly, uh, I thought, authentic. Authenticity? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's the yeah, I We can't. need that in politics. We totally have a lot of problems. Uh, but he, but, uh, but he, was, he pinpointed it so well, yes. and, and he got to the meat of the matter so finally that that's what made him so popular. I remember my first time when I came to do a a speech when there was a, a position open. I was over at the Kennedy School. Marie Nichols, who was uh, my professor at uh, in, at Illinois, said there was a position open at Emerson. And so I went over and Vito said, Vito Silvestri, a chair, of course, who changed the department a great deal for the better, uh, said to me, speak about anything you want. And then he called me at 10 o'clock the night before my meeting at 8 and said, we would like for you to talk about some type of voice theorist. And I said, uh, that's seven hours from now. This is not my area. And he said, well, work on it. So I remember doing something on Voigotsky or whatever. And Ken Cronell came up to me afterwards and he said, Dr. Payne, I... I listened to you, and it's very clear you know nothing about Vygotsky, but uh, I think this was a trap by Silvestri to see how you would perform, and you're a performer. I thought, well, that's interesting. But then he said to me, what part of Southern Illinois did you grow up? And I was somewhat puzzled. How could he know it? And I said, well, how would you know I grew up in Southern Illinois? And he said, because, say the word P-I-N, and I said at the time, Pen. And he said, say the word P-E-N. And I said, pen. And he said, and then when you go to the bathroom and do number one, do you tell people that you've been peeing? You have no distinction between pen and pen and peen. So, and I'm like thinking, this is my first, <laughs> this is my first introduction. Uh, if we switch and we, we come forward, you know, you have said to me many years, for many years, gee, I'm, I'm not sure you know, I want to continue here, but students keep saying yes, and I keep saying, Tom, you have to. If you looked at people like Colin, who's helping us with this podcast, what is, what is today's 
challenge for the Emersonian going into the real world and how do you help them get to where they want to go? Because your classes are packed and you are truly one of the most popular professors in the department. Here's what I say to them. I want you to be the person. When you walk into the room, people don't think that three people walked out. I want you to be dynamic. That means the sound of your voice, but also inflection. Impression precedes expression. So Curry said, think the thought. Emerson and Curry went to the same. They did talk. And we have a co- we have Curry College and then Emerson yeah, College. Right. They, they were um, um, contemporaries. Right. Uh, just um, get them to be dynamic. Of course, get rid of some things. Uh, I tell them, look, so you... Especially people, uh, English as a second language. So once in a while you're going to say da instead of the. Or once in a while you're going to uh, do one of those other things. It doesn't matter as long as you're communicating. People will forgive a lot of things. But if you're dull and your voice sounds bad and you have – and you mispronounce things all over the place, people aren't going to listen to you. Mm -hmm. So that's what I try to get into them and I don't know how I achieve it, but it's through exercise. Yes. Breathing exercises, overly open throat exercises. Drill, drill, drill on sounds. Uh, repeat, 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 and get them up and perform. They hate getting up in front of the class. Which hate we, it. Which hate we it. always do, but guess what? They walk out of your class much more confident. Yes. I think one thing I've noted, Tom, is... In the 90s, when we saw the first wave of students coming internationally, and especially from Asia, many of the students then were nervous about public speaking. Uh, of course, as you said, English was a second language. What's astonishing to me now, back as chair, is the fact that with Jane as head of the, the speech lab and people like you working, our entire I would say for the most part, our entire speech lab has been run by international students who understand and appreciate the importance of being articulate, persuasive, and effective regardless of the language. Right. Because it doesn't matter what language, it's just that you're an effective communicator. My question to you, Tom, is what do you think we should be doing now at Emerson in terms of communication that we are not doing? So if we had Tom Smith as president of Emerson for a day, uh, what would you have us do? Well, I'm prejudiced in this, but I think we should go back to at least three of the basic speech courses. I think everybody should take voice and articulation. I think everybody should take oral interpretation. interpretation. I think everybody should take public speaking. Uh, I think the first course they should take is voice and articulation. And then all the offshoots. But I think think if you're a, especially speech comm majors, Everybody should take voice right. in particular. Now, one thing that we've noticed is there's been a return to, I would say, some of those legacy iconic images and thoughts. And as you said, the oral tradition at Emerson, which friends of mine from the Big Ten say, you know, you, you are always first in terms of what you're doing. There is a, there is a part of a, 
an older logo that said expression necessary to evolution and of course that was popularized on the netflix series um, and what was the name of this this was stranger things and so suddenly that iconic t-shirt expression necessary to evolution is now everywhere uh, students like that to you what does expression necessary to evolution mean because to me it's more relevant today than it ever has been it just posed a tough one here uh well that's part of emerson we always put people on the spot right well in order to progress in order to make changes which is evolution in order to to a fine tune and whatnot, you have to be able to fine tune yourself. So, to learn to be expressive, to learn some vocal technique, to learn how to present an idea, how to how to organize thoughts, how to present them, how to sound. Uh, helps in your ability to take in new things and maybe to even produce them. Right. Uh, but it has to start somewhere. But I, I think uh, it's, it's an inner thing that happens to you that the impression precedes expression. I think you've you summed it up. I think one thing that I find when I think of that, and I and I read some of what Emerson was talking about in his in his books and treatises. You know, we use words like cultural competency. We use words like um, audience analysis, which of course back when when you and I were in school. But it all is all about, as Kenneth Burke would say, that we have a, the pentad, the act, the agent, the agency scene, and the purpose. And I think what Emerson has always been is to try to ensure that our students, and we have Ambassador Colin Hand here, who I think is going to be entering diplomacy, is able to speak the language, find, even with adversity, commonalities, and expand the dialogue. So I would like to thank you for coming today and to talk about what we see as an essential characteristic of what we had at the Global Summit in D.C., the Woodward and Watergate spectacle, and that is deliberative dialogues, which really had to do with making sure that you're an effective speaker, a critical listener, and I think that's part of the Emerson experience. So, Tom Smith, thank you for paying on politics, and may the Smithian scholars continue to change the world. 